everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of October 19th, 2023. I'm Charles Hayne. I'm here with the return from Panama of Gigi Hawkins. Hello, I'm back. I'm here with screenwriter Jason Hellerman. And this week, we're going to be talking about, first off, Gigi's shoot in Panama. And then we're going to be adding on top of that, we're going to talk a little bit about, I know it seems like the strike is over with the writers, with the writers back to work, but the actors are still on strike. So we're going to do a little strike update. We have a great reader question about adapting known works, which is a lot to unpack. That's really interesting and useful to talk about there. And we will probably talk about the new queen of all media with a $100 million opening and what that says about the future of cinema. That is this week on the No Film School Podcast. So first up, Gigi, feature in the can. People keep saying, you did it. And I'm like, but there's so much more to do. So the, but principle, um, we are 99% done with the scenes and we have one more shoot in LA Amazing. at a standing airplane set. And uh, yeah, I'm back. I made, I made something. I have a couple more wrinkles on my face and, and notches in my belt, I guess. I don't know what that means, but yeah, I'm back. And I'm, and I'm like, I mean, it implies you killed some people <laughs> yes. in yes. Panama. Teardrop. Yes. And notched yeah. your belt after you murdered people. Yeah. Is that not what you did? It was a, a killing spree. If, if killing means getting everything we set out to do. Like we didn't cut, we cut one scene, which was like a one eighth of a page, somebody walking back to a house before we, we even started shooting. And then I combined one scene so we didn't have to change location. So it was a very successful execution of what we set out to plan, including our boat day, which was like, actually so chill and fun. I thought boat day was going to be the most stressful thing in the world, but it was not. It it was lovely. Lovely. The thing you think is going to be the most stressful seldom is. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's always a surprise. It's interesting, the thing about filmmaking, because the big celebration, if you're lucky enough that you get a release, the big celebration's at the release. Yeah. The big celebration is wrap a principal photography, because that's also when most of the team post is wonderful, but post is like a director and an editor. And if you're lucky, a post super will occasionally meet with a producer, but really it's two people eating takeout in a dark room trying to find a story, which yeah. is less of a, you know, like I've never been to a picture lock party. Yeah, you're not like... I don't know if picture like... lock gets a party. It doesn't, but it should. It really yeah. should. It feels very... So what I think the most interesting part about that rap feeling is with shorts, which is all I've done up until this point, it is like, Everyone is like, oh, we did it. We just sprinted and now we're done and we're here and it feels so good. And I've always been on such a high. I remember wrapping my first short five five years ago, actually, this month. And I like was so tired and I like sat on the ground and like was drinking beer with my friends. And it was just like such a high. When I when we finished this, I I felt numb and sad because I'd been operating on like such a high level of like we're doing this. We get to do this. This is so exciting. I can't believe this is happening. And then it like stopped. And I think we were all like, you know, we were of course eaten alive by bugs in Panama and very tired and just had like sprinted doing five days on, two days off, five days on, two days off in one final day. But then I was like, wow, like where's that feeling? Where's that feeling? And so I think it's been this like gradual, like I, I, I started to get excited again two days after we wrapped. And, and I think I was like mourning the 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 phase that we had just completed from the moment that we wrapped. And then I got like super in my head and I, apparently my speech at the wrap party was was decent, but I like, you know, totally blacked it out and not from drinking, just from, you know, my brain chemistry. And, and it was weird. It was anticlimactic. And I think because I was starting to preserve energy to get to picture lock, which is very far away. And we also had to travel back from Panama with like a ton of gear and so I think I was in like we- this weird self-preservation mode that then made me get even more in my head about like, why am I not just like on cloud nine? And, and so I think that also probably comes with shooting on location because you have to say goodbye to all the people that you are working with there. We had a, a good chunk of our crew is from Panama or lives in Panama. And, and like, uh, it's really hard to get a visa to come to the US if you're Panamanian. And we're like, when are we going to see 
like Cesar, our sound guy next. Like we don't know. And so there was this like kind of weird disconnect and I'm still processing it all. No, absolutely. It's those roadshows are so weird because you end up having like, you know, an intense summer camp style sense of bonding with a crew of people, some of whom are the best collaborators you've ever worked with. And you're like, oh, it would be great if we could continue. And I mean, you know, famously, Wes Anderson had that with the key grip that he worked with so intensely on Darjeeling Limited, that that man has continued to be his key grip for the last 20 years on productions really? all over the world. And they met as local crew under Darjeeling Limited. But he was like, no, you're the key grip. You are key grip forever now. <laughs> now, when you have studio money, you can do that. It's harder to do it when you do an indie production in this great location and you meet this amazing crew and you come together to tell this great story. And, you know, production is always going to feel like the weirdest thing about film is the production feels like the biggest hurdle. And then you start again in posts mm -hmm. at a completely different kind of hurdle and a completely different kind of marathon. Oh, I mean, it's probably more like a real marathon where the first, you know, you, you hit that 10 miles and you're like, yeah, I've never actually finished. Yeah, you're marathon, in a runner. I've yeah. run 18 yeah. miles and yeah. uh, miles 10 to 18 harder than miles 5 to 10. Miles 5 to 10 rocks, which is really what a production is. And then 10 to 26 posts VFX. Then finally release. It's it's a whole uphill battle. How many weeks are you going to take off before you start posts? So uh, our editor, Christina O'Sullivan, is going to be getting the proxies next Wednesday. So they're going to be uploaded and and then she will be delivering the editor's cut on before Thanksgiving. And then she's coming out to LA and then we're going to start working together. So I have some time. There's a bunch of other things that we uh, are going to be doing. So we ended up getting like a great deal with um, fly trip. So in order to get to Bocas del Toro, Panama, you fly into Panama City and then you have to take a small plane there. And we negotiated a deal with this like small like company and and we filmed as we were traveling to get there and we brought out the camera sort of broken down version of the Alexa Mini to to capture the the so I'm going to be making something for them. I want to make a sizzle. I want to make something for Seed and Spark. So there's like all these other little things that we'll be doing. We're still raising money to cover post. So the work doesn't stop. Also, I like did most of costumes and worked with a couple of people along the way. But like, I'm like, have to do returns and do receipts. So like, it feels like there will be work. I know that there's going to be work leading up to it, but I've never had the opportunity to like, let something go and be fired as a writer-director so somebody can then figure out the best story. I've worked with Christina before and I'm very... I, ca I called her the day after we wrapped and I was like very anxious and I was like, remind me what is happening next? And I was... And I did not have the chance. Like we didn't have a script supervisor. I thought I'd be able to like record notes way more than I did. And, and I was like, I'll watch all the proxies and I'll give you my notes. Just tell me when. And she was like, actually like don't worry about it. Like give, let me have some space to, to work on this. And, and I was like absolved of this feeling of pressure. So I'm very excited to get there. I'm going to be sending her some like tone things. And generally, like I loved the last takes or the second to last takes. Um, and, but yeah, it's weird to let go. Like it, it feels like just a lot of like, this whole process has been one of trust because we've been moving so quickly that like you have to trust that somebody's got your back. And, and I hope that continues to carry over. I know it will. And I trust her because we've worked on things before, but I've never, I started, I actually cried in, I was sharing a room with my producer and I, I, I was like numb and she's like, what's wrong? And then I started crying because I was like, I've always felt really alone in the past in the post process. Like it's either me or me and the editor pushing it along. And she's like, you're not like, you're not alone. Like I'll be there. The editor's living at my house for a month and we have our other producer, Maria Laura, who will be post-supervising and, and you're not alone. And yeah. it was really exciting. Like this whole thing is greater than the sum of its parts. And I don't know, that that is the thing that's blowing me away is like working with people who are bringing their all, wearing too many hats and going so much outside of the scope of their role. But like every... Uh, the way that everyone showed up, like we have Aaron Ware, our gaffer, like the, we had such limited supplies, but the way he was able to craft the light and shape the light with a laughable amount of gear was so impressive. And I'm like, this is just, I think it's like, 
my DP, Ryan Thomas, was so good at like empowering people to like come up with solutions on their own. And and I really admire like that type of leadership. And I hope to like continue to carry that through in every phase of this film. I'm trying to think if there's like a juicy story or something I can tell. You kind of went over the, the boat day was an easy day. Was there something you thought that was going to be easy that wound up being a little harder? Yes, so much. <laughs> Let's see. So what was interesting, what, what we didn't expect was to be chasing the light. And so we had built a schedule assuming we'd be able to be shooting outside till like 6.30 p.m. But the light just starts to change so rapidly. So we ended up dividing a bunch of scenes or we'd be shooting and shooting and shooting even inside to a certain point. And then we'd have to pick up the scene the next day. So that was something that was surprising. And these scenes that I'm like, we'll have total control over this or we'll have plenty of time. Um, so it was surprising that we had to do that a couple of times. Like it, it worked out perfectly. And again, we got everything. But like, it is strange to pick up a scene 24 hours later and you're like, and remember, you just said this and now you walked over here. And then the day that I thought would be the most difficult, the climax of the movie where they go to an island called Secret Island, it we we had to decide between two locations, one that would have been really difficult to get to. We'd have to take a boat to the main island, take a 40-minute taxi ride on a janky road that's being rebuilt. So like, who knows if a truck would be in the way? And it would have been this beautiful location on Bluff Beach that would have been totally exposed. And I had envisioned it being this sort of desert island type space where the sun is beating down and they're sweating and blah, blah, blah. And and I and I I gave myself a couple of days to make the decision because we also went to this other location that was just a shorter boat ride, right, an island right across from where we were staying in a much more secluded, shady, private little beach area. And and I asked for a couple of days to decide. And and then I was like, I would rather use this space that has like some very just like the nature is jagged and interesting and cool. I'd rather use this space and not kill the team. And I had to sort of like put to bed my original vision that I know would have like pushed people in a way that could backfire so much. And ultimately, like it became, I mean, it was difficult. There were fire ants biting the actors like, and, and, and they had to show up in a way that was like incredibly emotionally vulnerable and there was like this sweet mangy dog that was like just kept wandering into our set and our producer had to scoop it up and walk it out. Actually, it reminds me of your dog, Jason. And I think we were all so worried that like Secret Island would be this like the actors couldn't get there or, you know, we had so many camera moves uh, and it's a eight page scene. We were so ready for it to go wrong that we had like prepared so much that when we were there, it was just like we were getting it. We were dealing with the issues in real time, but like we got it. And I'm so proud of the team. And I'm also so proud of the actors who just like showed up so memorized. They they all became great friends and they were always like, they never missed their lines. They were so prepared and it was so inspiring to see the work come to life through their the work that they did in to prepare, including like somebody who got br- brought onto the project as a lead a week and a half before. I mean, for me, it's just, it's it's one of those beautiful things, you know, filmmakers are always like, it's not just me, it's the team, as a cliche, but it's also true, it's not just you, it's the team, and it's so beautiful to hear you talk about all of that, and it makes me think about, like, you know, I just interviewed the DP of the creator, that interview's coming soon, thank you, Jason, for making that happen, and he talked about, like, one of the big goals with the creator was taking everything they've learned from indies to a studio level, that, like, just because you're doing a studio movie doesn't mean you can't treat it like an indie. And like most of the creator is shot on an FX3 and lit with aperture lights. And he was like, yeah, we loved aperture lights. They were light. We could set them up quick. We didn't need big stands. We could get them up. We could move. And I was, and he was like, you know, he was talking about the same kit that I take out on like a little documentary interview to shoot an $80 million movie. And I loved it. And I loved everything you're talking about. I also really loved you talking about the actors and that they took it so seriously. There's this, I remember if you, there's not a lot of books on acting for screen. There are a few, but most books on acting are like acting for stage. Yeah. But Michael Caine has a great book on screen acting that I think every director should read. It's super fun. It's full of like pivy Michael Caine stuff where he talks about, you know, like I don't remember that movie, but I remember the pool it bought me. Like, you know, mm-hmm. he's Michael Caine. But 
He also talks a lot about that, like one of your jobs as a screen actor is the ability to spread a scene over time. That like part of your job is pickups. Part of your job is coming back three months later and getting back to the same place. And that is part of the craft of screen acting that you should train yourself and expect to do because that is your job. And it's like something I think about a lot, like that, you know, that is one of those things that like, it's much different than stage acting, but that doesn't make it lesser than stage acting. And the ability to be like, we need to pick the scene up and we have to get back to where we were is a skill that like, it's really nice to hear that you had the actors who did it and to hear that you appreciated that the actors could do it because it's not always natural for actors to be like, oh yeah, that scene three years ago, I'm just going to pick up my my coverage from that angle without the other actor three months later. Um, So it's a beautiful thing to have had that experience. Yeah, Yeah, it it is. the. I mean, I, I, I do think the last five years have been so focused on learning the craft of filmmaking and also the craft of storytelling. Uh, I've had a couple of, you know, I've gotten to work with a lot of actors. It's the first time I worked with a casting director. And I I do think that like, that is something I want to like continue to hone. Like it's kind of in the back of my head that I'm like, I want to get back into screen acting classes because to be able to put yourself out there in that way. And I want to be able to empathize. Like I tried to generally, if my actors were wearing shorts or barefoot or flip-flops outside in these elements, I tried to like wear what they were wearing to like feel what it was like and know when the heat or the fire ants are, or the sand fleas, which are the worst are biting you. But yeah, the, the, the vulnerability that this cast brought to the table and just the commitment, it, it really blew me away. And I think so easily somebody could check out from this experience, cast and crew, because like, I, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating. Like we all have hundreds of bites on our, all over our bodies. Like we were itching till we're bleeding. One of our actors, Arta Gee, who's also a model, like their legs are so messed up right now that like they they went right to another shoot and luckily it was all pants but I was like oh fuck like are we gonna like what's gonna happen and and so like they were putting themselves out there emotionally physically and like and they showed up and it was it was just so so impressive and I wonder what it'll be like if when I don't have such a down group of, te- of actors. They were down that like, you know, they have to all make out with each other. Or, like they, you know, we're, we, we went through some intimacy coordination exercises and we did the best that we could do, but they were, they were, they, I, I think I was very, very fortunate to be working with such a, you know, generous group of talent. It won't always be that way. <laughs> but good to, good to learn the easy way. Early on, you know, or or the way that yeah. is most comfortable, and then apply everything when it gets more difficult later. I mean, an indie better be fun. If, if if we're all gonna take pay cuts and eat sandwiches and get bug bites, it, you know, it should at least be a good experience. Was anyone on the crew immune? I feel like I've been on a few shoots where like everybody got mosquito bites, but then there was that one person who's like, "Yeah, I just don't get mosquito bites," and we all silently grow to hate them. Are some of our Folks from who have lived in Panama or are from Central America, they were like, they they didn't get bit at all. And and then my DP had like three bug bites the whole time. And I I remember talking to our first AC, Calvin, and I was like, Yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna come back and people are gonna be like, What are those wounds? Like, what are those scars? And and then he very politely was like nodding and like, haha, like entertaining my joke. And then he's like, I actually I haven't gotten any bug bites. But then that night he stood on a ant, a red ant thing and it went into his boots and we were shooting at night. And so he was like, I love this experience. Like it will always be in my heart. Like, you know, and that means a lot from somebody who's like always on set to me. But he's like, except the bugs. And I'm like, fair, totally fair. And I, and I also want to shout out like the folks in Bocas del Toro who showed up for us as a community. like. We we shot at two locations, Coquitos and Bibis, which are on the island Carinero. And and then we like actually sort of fell in with them as like friends and would go there and hang out all the time. And like I feel like they totally embraced us as a crew and created a second home for us. And that sort of support and engagement was like so 
so helpful. Like they, when we had to change caterers because the first caterer was like, the food wasn't nourishing enough. We ended up working with the penny at BB's who like, like gave us a great deal on food and everyone loved that food anyway. Yes. And like, it was incredible. And then we, there, I, I'm just blown away and hope that like the film can do justice to that beautiful place. And I want to do a screening there for everyone who was involved. And so we'll, we'll be back. And I think, I think that everyone who had never been there what left with like a huge part of their heart is still there. We are very, very lucky. So I, I have to ask, I, I once did a job in West Virginia and about half my crew had just come off a movie James Franco directed. Uh-huh. So there were like many running jokes about like, well, how would Franco handle this moment? And like, you know, it was, it was a running gag. I actually, you know, I wasn't that curious how Franco was going to cover a scene, but it was like humorous and famously Bocas del Toro. I don't know who's directed there since, but uh, Harmony Corrine did a project in Bocas. Did you have any crew overlap with Harmony? Were there any veterans? Not that I know of. I don't think so. But weirdly, my mom texted me and was like, do you know who this is? Like his parents live there. And I, I don't know, but we do... They were filming like a survivor deal or no deal show there. And apparently the entire crew got sick. And only one, actually my producer got super sick the second week and like had to go to the hospital. But she just, L. Roth Burnett, just like took one for the team, was working from the hospital bed with an IV in her arm. And and I think she like, like somehow absorbed all the sickness from the CBS crew for our team and like just took it on. And yeah, we did have kittens on set one day. Highly recommend set kittens. Uh, I mean, I said kitten seems like a recipe for cat scratch fever, but I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to, going to stay out of it. As, as a freshly minted cat owner, I'm now a big cat fan. My oh. daughter wanted a cat. So we got a cat. It's oh, my first time sweet. having a cat since I was like six. It's wild. Did you name the They're cat great. any film? Uh, is the cat named like Sennheiser? Mind? Unfortunately, the cat, we adopted the cat and the cat already had a film name. Ooh, so what was it? the cat is named Wells oh. with no second E. Yeah. And for the rest of my life, I have to explain the cat is named Wells. I did not name the cat Wells. The cat was named Wells before we got him you just as a filmmaker. You come up with a longer name. Like maybe it stands for Wellesley, you know? Well, it's Wells Anthony Pitkin. So I should just be saying Wells Anthony Pitkin. Is his <laughs> Every name? time. That is that is his name on all his medical records. Wells Anthony Pickin. He is a Wells, like that is absolutely his name. And you know, I'm an Orson Wells fan. Orson Wells continues to slap and yeah. has not been canceled yet. So <laughs> I'm okay with people making that assumption. But yeah, no, it did not end up with a with a film name on purpose. Ended up with a film name on accent. He's a good cat though. My daughter really loves him. Wait till so. your cat does those uh, famous wine commercials you can watch on YouTube, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Wells would do an amazing fish sticks commercial. <laughs> Wells loves a fish stick. I would be really excited to do that. What did I, I, oh, I want to hear, what did I miss over here? I've been like living in a bubble. I know the WGA strike is over and (laughs) what have you guys been up to? You know, there's some great interviews on nofilmschool.com, Gigi. I'll check them out. I'll check them out. So yeah, I mean, the two big things that happened while you're gone is box office is back with Taylor Swift breaking $100 million in the box office. Amazing. Which is that news is something that's obviously going to happen, happening news like sunrises. Taylor Swift makes hundred million in the box office. <laughs> I, I feel like it's funny. You know, a lot of the articles, including some that we wrote about, like, it's like, oh, we all thought it was going to be 150 and it's only 130 worldwide. And I'm like, like, that is so much money for a movie that cost 15 million dollars to make. It was only marketed through Instagram. <laughs> And, and fandom, you know, it's crazy. I think I, according to Puck News, and it had like an 80% female audience make, makeup, which is also, you know, again, like, you know, find your market and market it to them. And then 60% of all ticket goers bought tickets early and went to like, these are, you know, interesting skewing numbers, but also I feel like are setting like a market precedent. And like the big winner in that, all of it is AMC was an exclusive deal you know, who's just running these uh, shows. And, you know, I'm sure we've all seen the viral videos at this point of like the circles of Swifties joining hands and dancing in front of the screen and all of the oh other raucous behavior that is, you know, kind of delightful. You know, I, I don't know. It sounds, if I was going to that show for that, you know, as a fan, that's what I want to happen. I doubt there are many casual Taylor fans showing up opening weekend, not knowing what they're getting into. 
but you know, and and just like also like a, having an actress, well, yeah, a singer, right? A singer is also an actress. Having a marquee piece so famous that the NFL is falling over itself just to put her on camera and mentioning a movie, you know, that they have no ties to. Again, like I don't know, 130 million, maybe it is low, but but great. We'll, we'll definitely have to keep tabs on whether it holds on. You know, I it does feel like something that mi- people will see multiple times. So. Um, it's kind of this unprecedented indie movie, if you really think about it. Like again, cost fifteen million, paid out of pocket by someone who's probably close, worth close to a billion dollars. But you know, it just speaks to the power of how big of a star Taylor Swift is in general. You know, it makes me wonder. Like also, like I know she's directing now. She did a short. I think she's directing a feature, attached direct a feature. Mm-hmm. And when that starts, it's like studios have to see this guy's the limit when it comes to something that someone this huge attaches himself to. And and maybe this is something. It ushers in something different in, in terms of maybe not $15 million, but the indie market. And look, we saw uh, The weekend and his, uh, <laughs> you know, sort of TV idea of the idol. Um, whether or not that was successful, I think we could say it, it didn't feel like it was. Just it was kind of tumultuous and fell apart at different, different points. But it was a talking point for a while. You know, I don't know, like, that, how many people actually watch it on Max, but it was a fun thing to talk I about. I watched all of it. Yeah, exactly. I watched it every single episode. Yeah, I, I, I did not keep up on the bad thing. I didn't keep up on anything. I just started watching it because I was like, oh, this is like visually very interesting. And and I kind of have not tuned into any of the stuff, but I was like, I'm entertained. I'm entertained. There are parts that were more interesting, I thought, than, than good. I thought he wound up not being a very good actor, which maybe held it back. I, I do think that's like the bridge we'd have to see. Get you know, like Taylor Swift is obviously not acting in the air. I mean, she's acting, right? She's a performer, but it's not. Yeah, she's not being anyone who's she's not selling as herself. So, be interesting to see if she did a movie and starred in it as well as directed. Like what that connection would be there. But it is. It's just fun. I don't know the Taylor Swift thing for some reason. I just think is a blast. I mean, it's a blast because her songs are all so catchy, and no matter when you hear them, you're like, all right, this is this is a banger. But it is. It is fun. It's fun that it opened that big. I love that it was 80% female. It's just like, this is our audience. We're yeah. not trying to pander to anybody else. This is the Ayers concert film, you know. I also love that she is directing and she is putting herself out there. So if 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 she is, she's already a role model to so many kids and girls. And, and so I think that her doing that shows people who may not have otherwise thought that they could do it. Like, oh, yeah, no, this is something in my wheelhouse. Like if I, I'm trying to think of the equivalent of for me growing up, like of a Taylor Swift, like the closest thing I can think about is like Britney Spears, who was like, did not have autonomy and was not given a name where she is like recognized for her prolific experience. She was like this cult sort of cultivated, you know, we, you can watch the documentaries and you'll know all about it. But like it is, it's inspiring to see how prolific she is and how articulate she is about like her journey as a creator over and over again. Like, uh, I was gonna say, the thing it goes back to for me is the argument that was being made 20 years ago is the future of cinemas is a variety of things. It will be movies and it will be concert experiences and it will be sports. And we haven't really seen that happen. But I think we're finally about to see that happen. And mm. the most exciting part for me is I would like movie theaters to continue to exist because I want to be able to go see Haunting in Venice in a movie theater. And movie yeah. theaters have to be in business for that to happen for a like mid-budget, no huge celebrity, but like super fun horror movie. Like if you haven't seen Haunting in Venice, it's a really good time. Kenneth Branagh knows what he's doing. And you know, like not a $300 million movie, $40 million movie gets a theatrical because the theaters are in business. And like, if things like Taylor Swift, two or three of those a year, keep more theaters in business so that even though I'll probably not see it in theater unless my daughter wants to go, I can then go the next weekend and the theater is still in business and I get to see my $20 million movie by somebody that I love getting a theatrical because the theaters are there. That is exciting for me. And I like seeing, like between this and Barbie, I feel like studios and marketers are finally starting to figure out how to turn movies into event moments that aren't just, like the concept of event movie for a long time was pre-existing IP, one brand, like it was very adolescent male targeted, which is fine. Yeah. I was once an adolescent male and I went <laughs> to the movies. But I feel like studios are finally putting some real thought and effort into a wide variety of event movies. And you're not going to be able to make a women 25 to 50 event movie every weekend. But if you can make two of those a year and two of those a year for adolescent males and two of those a year and like Barbenheimer was for all of us, right? Barbenheimer was for everybody. 
then you stand a real shot of keeping theaters alive, which I would like to have happen so that on a random Tuesday, I can go see Parasite in a movie theater. Yeah. And be excited. You know, like that's... So I, I don't know if I will get to see it or not. I enjoy Taylor Swift. She seems very good at what she does. I, you know, but I, I'm just happy to see it succeed. Yeah. I was going to say, I love the idea of sports in movie theaters too, like for that exact reason, but like a community thing that is not fully centered around drinking. That is really interesting to me. Uh, like there is, I'm not really interested in watching sports. I'd rather watch movies, but like I'd see, uh, I'd go to a Michigan game at an AMC if I can be with Wolverines and eat popcorn. I, I did the NFL at the AMC. It, it is fun. It's it's interesting to watch a game that big. I do think there is a little bit separate. Yeah, you know, there's like a, there's almost a decorum question, right? Where at like a bar, you could be high-fiving and hugging people. And if your team's winning, you know, like, it's great. I, I, I think like the Swift thing, honestly, is so interesting because it, it sort of broke that down, right? It's like, oh, no, we're going to behave like we're at the concert. And I, and I do think, you know, for better or worse, like it's figuring out like, okay, how do we continue to translate that into sports? Which I don't think they've totally figured out yet because you're, uh, at least when I went to the AMC Burbank, you like pick which screen your game is on. And then you go to that and like you have to hope other people are there where it's like something mm. you can easily access, access at home. That's, you know, like the, you can only see the Toast with Airs thing right now in theaters. It would be interesting if they did like a Super Bowl you know, you could watch there, you know, like something that you could, yeah. again, watch with the community who you don't know who's going to be on which side, but also like would be fun. But, you know, Sam Wrench, who directed the Eras tour, also did the Billie Eilish movie. And, you know, that that did moderately well, you know, not to this level. But Beyonce has a movie coming out next year that also has the same deal with AMC. Which I think like just going back to what you're saying, Charles, it's like, look, AMC, it's not a mom and pop theater, but it is amazing to know that they're willing to take these chances on these big things. Cause I do think, I do think it translates to something smaller, you know, like if they were going to roll yeah. out an indie that, you know, cost 15 million or less, you know, like an indie in general and say like, Hey, we want to roll it out exclusively at our theaters. If you had a star, if you had a hook, if you were coming off of a big festival debut, whether it's South by or Sundance or something like that, just, it does, it feels like it's changing the game in a way where like, we're so concerned about how to preserve theaters and we're all the same place, but it is, Interesting to be like, maybe the answer is something we haven't thought of before. And it is deep-seated in this sort of creative influence of like, yeah, opening things for different people every weekend mm -hmm. will continue to get you people every weekend. And if you have like the big, let's say, female-focused, you know, young, skewing female audience for the Taylor Swift, and you never know, like, look, if they did like a Bruce Springsteen thing, sometimes your parents will all be at the AMC, you know, like, uh, yeah. including me. But it is like, <laughs> who do you roll out when? It doesn't have to be concerts. It could just be whatever. Like, it does feel like, you know, as someone who has tickets to see Killers of the Flower Moon on opening night, like Scorsese is an event movie, right? That's a three and a half hour yeah. long Scorsese film, but it's an event. You're going to the theater for it. Like, if they could figure out what these big marquee names and draws are, hopefully they can continue the success. Because coming out of COVID, it is one of those things where like, nothing makes me happier than a crowded movie theater. Now I'm like just so pumped to be there with other people experiencing something. I think Eras did that. I think they'll have to figure it out for sports because you do need to make sure you get an inherent audience and, uh, you know, whatever. But it it is interesting. Sitting quietly watching a sports game in a theater actually sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. I was assuming it was like the energy of the it Eras is, yeah, tour. It's just but, uh, so much harder when you can just get it at home or like go somewhere and meet yeah. your friends. You know, I think that's the... The seats are nicer, you know? It's better, it's better than a bar in many ways, but it is... No, figure but out I also think that, that this is a real driving force that will hopefully lead to theaters having better soundproofing. Absolutely. I mean, because mm. let's be real, this was a problem before, this was a problem separate from audiences. Like, I'm a New Yorker. There's one of my favorite theaters. I hear the subway go by underneath. Still like the movie theater, but I hear the subway. We all, is if it live the in Angelica? New York, yeah, is it everybody the knows the Angelica and you can hear the subway. But even separate from the Angelica, I've been in AMCs where I'm sitting there and I'm watching like a very quiet, intimate, oh my God. My movie played in AMC once and The Conjuring was in the next theater. And I was like at a screening of my movie so I knew exactly what it was supposed to sound like. And I sat and like this like murder scene in The Conjuring was oh, playing on no. the screen. I could hear it through the thing. And I'm like, oh, no. and like, I pity anyone who has their movie next to a fucking Chris Nolan movie. Well, as you say, like, if, if you, you saw have a Barbie, movie next you also Dunker, heard Oppenheimer this summer. Even if you didn't go to Barbenheimer, <laughs> you heard the bomb yeah. drop for sure. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, watched, like, oh. I love how loud those movies are, but we need better soundproofing between yeah. the theaters, please. 
I do. I I watched If Beale Street Could Talk at the Angelica and I was like, wow, they really just like nailed the sound design of the subway going through. And that's so beautiful. And then like, I was like, oh, no, that is. It's like almost a 4D experience because your seats rattle (laughs) and you're like, for the right movie, it is immersive. Yeah. I watched the straight story at Angelica and I was like, there are no subways in Iowa. Like, this is not. That's hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, no subways in Iowa. Yeah, no subways in Iowa. Definitely an indie movie title. Get us, get us fifteen oh million. Yeah. We've got. We'll have a story next week. For some yes. reason, we're going back to Panama to shoot it. We don't know why, but yeah, it'll work. Yeah, exactly. It'll work. We do have a joke on set that like we're gonna be back to shoot a movie called Bocas Express, and it's like an Indiana Jones style, only on boats, only shot at night. <laughs> so if anyone knows what happens in that movie, please let me know. Gigi, one of the stories you told me when I was on my movie Shovel Buddies, why I really love the costume guys. And it was one of those things where I was like, am I ever going to see you again? And we randomly worked together on a YouTube holiday special six years later. And they were bringing in the costumes. And like the joy I had when they, we like our eyes met and we recognized each other. And it was like, they're holding stupid costumes. And I was holding the stupid script. And just that's, I do think you just never know. Like Hollywood, no matter where you are in the world is, is such a small place. You know, like maybe it'll come back around. You never know what someone else's journey is, but, the nice thing is when you work on something together, that connection lasts forever. You know, whether yeah. whoever they are, wherever they are. Uh, I do think like, I don't know, just, just even being in LA, I feel like I run into people all the time that I have worked with over the years. But if you were on a feature together and you spent a long time together, that is like that immediate transportation back. Yeah. Uh, and it's always... The thing about guys- that that annoys me is I love that about crew life and I wish everyone was like that. Ah, but yeah, normal true. people, if you don't call your dad for 15 years and your dad sees you, he's not like, yay! <laughs> he's like, where have you been for 15 years? Or like... Son? Oh, yeah. yeah. Is that but you? It's like, I love film set people because you will just literally not like, you know, you will see someone that you saw 25 years ago in Ohio and you'd be like, you... Ohio, yeah. 1997. And it's like, yeah. And like, mm-hmm. it is it is such a gift that all film people are like that. And I wish normal people had do a little bit have... more of the, it's just nice to see you. It's okay, yeah. you didn't call. Do, do you have tips for the post-set blues? Oh, the Monday, the Blue Mondays, as they Work call it. Work on something theater? new. Yeah. I, honestly, working on something new, but it, it's hard to do that immediately. Yeah. So the biggest thing I did was I eventually started being like, I just have to accept it's going to happen and there's no way to fight it. And I'm going to give, I mean, you're already going to the beach, but my habit became like the day after wrap or the two or three days after wrap. Like I wouldn't open the mail because, you know, your mail piles up, your laundry piles up. And like, it got to be too depressing where I was like, okay, now's the day where I open all the mail. And I'd be like, (laughs) all right, I have to do a thing in those first two or three days where like, I don't get to the mail. I don't get to the laundry. I'm like, I have to do a thing that is enjoyable. Yeah. That is like a, yeah, like, yeah, I remember after one movie going to the Vista and watching whatever the fuck was at the Vista. I didn't even look ahead of time. I was just like, I'm going to go to the Vista Aww. right now. Yeah, going to the movies. Movie. Exactly. Yeah, I, I do think it's like yeah. going to the movies to remind yourself like, oh, I worked on one of these things and it feels good. But I do, and it might just be my chronic workaholic uh, nature is I also get back from like a week long normal vacation and I'm like must open final draft. But it just working on something new because I think it's like the preservation of hope that you're going to do it again also matters a lot, even if there's multiple years between different things, just having that connection to the idea of the craft to me is always something that keeps me coming back. Yeah. All right. So we have an astronaut film school this week. It's a big, complicated one. So I'm going to give a summary of it. Aspiring writer to practice writing has written an adaptation of a known book. Now, not as famous as the, you know, Science of the Lambs, but not like, but not so obscure that like I had heard of it. It's really, I had heard of it. I thought, I think of it as a relatively obscure book, but it, it was like on my radar. Jason, I think you'd heard of it as well, right? Yes, yeah. So the question is, is what do you do when you're adapting something without the rights? And I have, I'm going to let Jason go first. I have many takes on this. The first thing I will say before I let Jason go is your first five screenplays are probably not going to get made in movies anyway and are just about learning to write a screenplay. And so if this is your first screenplay and the way you want to learn to write a screenplay is adapting a book you love, fine. Totally great. Like, great way to learn how story mechanics work, how to break out the sequences, how to, like, you will learn so much from this. Then, like, the professional half, there's so much to talk about. Yeah, it's a giant waste of time professionally. But I think, I, but I think, <laughs> I think practice-wise, it's everything you said, Charles. And I, hilariously, the person who wrote this in, I think also privately emailed me and we 
talked on the phone for an hour last week just about the pros and cons of this, but I'll you know break it down to some bullet points. I think it's an amazing learning experience for how to do this, whatever. But if you haven't talked to the author and don't control the rights, there's nothing you can really do with it. It's going to be hard, I think, especially as a, someone who's trying to break in like the this writer was to get an agent or manager to look at material that they don't own, can't be shopped around and doesn't help them in any way. And if they could get the author to sign on and do it, great. You know, then you you have something. But until that happens, really, you just have to look at it as an exercise. Is this helping me learn how to be a writer, how to put things down, how to do whatever? I do think it's beneficial. But I always say, like, if you want to be a writer, the best way to learn is to work on original things, you know, because you once you take that safety net away of an author who's figured out the beats of a story, because what you're really learning with adaptation is how do I take all the things the author did, pick out the core that I think works the best for what the cinematic version or television or whatever is version of it is. And then how do I layer in the other things? Or like, are the other things worth layering? In? Are these characters, whatever? I think Jurassic Park, one of my favorite books, not 100% like one of my favorite movies, Jurassic Park. <laughs> you know, like it's what are the things that matter? Who are the characters? How do you bring things in? So I do think it's an interesting exercise. I, I think, look, at the end of the day, you're talking about using multiple months to do something. I'm always in favor of working on something original because A, you have the rights, B, it showcases what you can do and C, if you have a noisy original spec, you might very well be able to get the rights to the book you love that's sort of been forgotten and, and how to adapt it. But that's kind of where I would start. Yeah, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly with Jason. Like, yeah, Jurassic Park, the book, Jurassic Park, the movie, very different things because you're taking something and translating it and that's a skill. And that's actually a skill where there's a lot of work. Yeah. So a great adaptation of a book people know really well and they understand what you did can be very good for you. Or if the book is super obscure, you chose medium obscure, which is tricky because medium obscure is just enough that like the rights will be complicated. And the big thing to figure out right now is I feel like a lot of people in the beginning of their career are figuring out where they are and they're like, oh, well, I need to get the rights and I need to figure out how to get it made and I need to figure out. And it's like, no, if you're going to be a writer, don't worry about getting the rights. Producers do that. Yeah. Your job is to write something so amazing that producers are excited to work with you. And maybe they'll want to get the rights to this or they'll want to get the rights to something else. Learning how to be a producer, learning how to secure rights and put together financing is a different skill. And Chris McQuarrie argues that at the top end, at the studio end, every screenwriter should learn how to produce. And I think that there's benefit in that. But I think the smartest move when you start your career is to pick one thing and say, this is the thing I am to start with, to try and build relationships and connections. The other thing, and this is interesting because this isn't something I really thought about a few years ago, but I've been seeing more and more of, and I think is interesting, is I do think there is a nebulous space that is more interesting than it used to be of un, unlicensed biopics. Yeah. By which mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's like a big thing, like a lot of blacklist scripts break out. There's a blacklist script a couple of years ago that was like a biopic of Hillary Clinton. Yeah, right. And I don't think it yeah. got made. What? Yeah, right. Yeah, I know the writer really well. He's one. Of, he's just a lovely guy. Young old Kim. Great yeah. guy. Um, Young, if you're listening, but, you're the best. <laughs> yeah, but mm -hmm. didn't have the rights. And I don't think it got made, no. but I believe it got a lot of meetings and attention. It got him. He has worked consistently since that Blacklist script and was working before, but not as... And it absolutely lit his career on fire and he's worked on a ton of different things since then. So like, there is also a space for looking for interesting, engaging people where there is heat. And again, you don't want to go too obscure here. Like, you know, the the, the third undersecretary for war in, in Lincoln's cabinet is probably not the same heat as like a Hillary Rodham Clinton take. Yeah. But like, because that same thing that's true of IP is still true in the spec market, where it's probably easier to get people to read a like, ooh, a Hillary Clinton's like, it comes with a pre-contained thing. Absolutely. And as a screenwriter, you're still learning what it takes to craft a character because the Hillary Rodham Clinton of that screenplay is not everything that she is in the person, right? Although I, I haven't actually read the script. I should read this if I'm going to riff on it. But I'll send I bet it to you. It's a great better script. Be, yeah. There better be a Kissinger scene in it because the fact <laughs> that she was tight with Kissinger is like among many things that's so infuriating. That guy should fucking be underground. But you still learn about telling a story from a thing. And there's also a fuck ton of work for biopics yeah. of famous people. And so if you have a script that is a biopic of a famous person, even if it might not get made, and I don't know if that, uh, like there's a billion reasons. I think that there is an argument to be made that like there's interesting things to do in that space. Well, and you can showcase your, you have to pick out the beats of someone's life and tell us why it's dramatic and why am I hanging on to what's happening? It might look my two best friends in Hollywood, best man at my wedding, 
wrote the McCarthy script, mm-hmm. which was on the blacklist in 2012, which was, I mean, top of the blacklist in 2012. You know, McCarthy, a lot of, a lot of drama there, you know, in the, the literal blacklist. Of Andrew McCarthy, star of the mannequin, had a biopic yeah, about him? Exactly. And my other best friend, that, that was Justin Kramer, who wrote that. Cody Broder wrote the Drudge biopic, which was huge five years ago. Both of them worked consistently afterwards. Two very different people, but actually two very similar people, you know, in, in what they did. And I think, you know, the Drudge wound, wound up being more of kind of like a comedy, you know, of just like a guy who, you know, was kind of like a, sh- a schmuck who had a website that was willing to print anything and kind of sort of lucked into the Bill Clinton infidelity story. And McCarthy, you know, a terrible person who's calculated and knew what he was doing, you know, and sort of lucked into the Hollywood blacklisting times. But, you know, those are were big specs that were good. A couple of years ago, I wrote one on the Charles Lindbergh just on the kidnapping. I was like, I can't. Why is this not a thing? And that was got me some work as well. It's, it's just like a showcase of a voice. Hey, I can adapt things. I could take certain things, whatever. And also like unlicensed. I didn't you don't need any books, you know, like if these are big historical figures, it's, it's always good to read a lot of books on them. But you're not adapting, let's say, like the official autobiography of Charles Lindbergh or whatever. You're just kind of taking the facts around someone. You can build a thing. And again, they don't always get made, but they are absolutely great ways to get because anybody wants to read that. You know, if like the person is remotely interesting, people want to read it. And yeah, there's a lot of famous people out there. And, you know, you shoot your shot. Again, this isn't to get made. It's just to get read and it will get you other work because there's a huge market for it. Well, and it also it part of Hollywood is bullshit and the it feels like a movie, right? Like if I I remember when I was a script reader and you could really obviously tell when you were reading script every weekend, like movies written by movie people and movies written by people who are not going to end up being movie people. I was about to give an example from one, but then I was like, oh, this is actually kind of mean to make fun of someone's writing. But like, there's one I still remember 20 years later. I was like, yeah, it's not a movie. But if I picked up a stack and there's a Hillary Rodham Clinton biopic, my assumption would not be this is a spec from an, from someone outside of the industry. My assumption would be I am evaluating this. This is a working writer who's looking for new representation or they're submitting yeah. it to Meryl Streep to try and talk her into being like that would just be my assumption. And all of the sudden, because of the way human perception works. I am treating it as a more serious thing. And if they do something daring or bold, I'm thinking these are professionals doing what, like in control of the form. I am not thinking, oh, well, that's a really late inciting incident. They really don't have their act together. Like, and it's all perception and it's a weird perception game. And so, you know, that's where the argument goes. Now, this is an urban legend that I actually want Jason to confirm or deny for me. I've long heard that there's a bunch of material like this out there that never gets made because the studios are in like a cold war about like a Houdini is the example. Apparently everyone has a Houdini script. And if anyone makes it, everyone else will immediately make it to, to do the like Dante's peak. Yeah. Armageddon I don't want to get to it. I will tell you that I know at least three active, I'm using air quotes, Houdini projects that are all on the precipice that have all have a list actors attached. There was a very famous screenwriter who's a terrible person who also had a Houdini spec that, you know, everyone's get, gets the edge. It definitely is like that thing. But the problem is studios have spent so much money writing and rewriting. They'd have to pay out all these writers for decades um, if they made them. The Houdini mm-hmm. thing is definitely a, we could talk so about don't Charles. Houdini. I'll give you some hilarious Houdini stuff. Yeah. Ooh, all right. I was literally at the Houdini estate last night for a wedding. So oh, wow. I was like, this would be a fun place for a movie. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently there are tunnels. It's the guy so. that every actor wants to play and, you know, dislo- dislocate their shoulder or whatever he does, you know, but yeah. uh, drown or however he dies at the end, right? Punch in the lungs. But it is. <laughs> I think he got punched. Yeah. But it's like. When he wasn't ready. What's the, I, I, and there's a lot of drama in his life, too. It's, uh, yeah, just studios who are ready. I mean, look, there's so many public figures. I know, you know, there's a J.K. Rowling one that was the top of the blacklist. That woman who wrote that, Anna Klass, and she works a ton, too. Like, it's like there's plenty of famous people out there you're not even thinking of. There's a Tolkien one that I think got made with, what's his face, tall and skinny, and Nicholas Braun, right? Was in the Tolkien biopic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So there, and some of them get made. I don't want to make it sound like none of them get made. A lot of them do go on. I know my friend I Cody, love how who, you use tall and skinny as if it would help us identify famous actors. <laughs> yeah, come on. That, that tall, skinny actor. There's there's only one of them, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, Nicholas you know. Braun, like, wouldn't even be in my top 20 tall, skinny. Right. Like, he is <laughs> tall and quite fit. But, like, I was going Benedict Cumberbatch, and, like, yeah. there were so many other people there's in the a, tall and skinny I will say category. when you write these, there's always a lot of them come out the same year, too, right? So it's like we had two Hitchcock years that where it was like Anthony yeah. Hopkins and Toby, right? I almost said Toby, Toby Keith. Not Toby Keith, the country music star. It doesn't matter. But Toby... 
not Toby Emmerich, the does Maguire. Toby Jones, right? Toby Jones. Toby Jones. The, the amazing yeah. Toby Jones. Yeah, the amazing the wonderful yeah, exactly. Toby Jones. Yeah. The fantastic. And we had two two Capote years. Yeah, exactly. So they do come in yeah. twos sometimes. Waves. But yeah, there's plenty of people out there. I you know, I don't know. When anyone's breaking in, I think like that's a nice way of saying like it's original, but it also has IP behind it, right? The intellectual property of how famous this person is kind of goes back to what you said, Charles. You don't want to find like the undersecretary of whatever, unless they have a lot of famous people in their lives. Like I know the Drudge thing. It's like Matt Drudge is famous, but he's not famous. But the best part of that script was that he interacted with the most famous people in the world during yeah. the Clinton thing. So it was just like, and then people who became famous. So it's like you get a Roger Ailes character, you get all the Fox News personalities, you know, like all these people who then kind of cross paths. Uh, I'm, I'm also going to say this because this happened to me. Nobody French. Like I did this with somebody French and everybody was like, this is so pretentious. And I was like, it's not pretentious. It's actually like sexy, fun and dangerous. But just the fact that he was French was immediately read by everyone in Hollywood as being unbearably pretentious. So, you know, an American. American stories. But yeah, so look, that's a way around. I think it's so hard to get the rights to books. Uh, When I talked to the guy who wrote in for this Eskimo Film School on the phone, I kind of shared a story about I was chasing this book for three years and Last week, I found out a humongously famous actor had paid for, like, also found out the book existed and paid a lot of money for it. And I was like, oh, you always lose to money, you know? And if you have to yeah. convince the author why you're so passionate, the right person to write it, you should also, like, you will lose to money. You'll lose every time. Like, it, well, and, it just, and it's you know, astounding the number of times it's actor. Sean Astin owns the rights to a book that I really would love to adapt. Yeah. That, like, good for him. Your good taste. That's what I know. That's right. When I found out my manager finally was like, we were able to track down who has it. It's blank. I was like, oh, cool. All right. You know, he's like, I called his manager and told him you were very into the book too. And they were like, oh, we're down the line with other famous person. I was like, oh, cool. I'll, I'll still see that movie written by famous person starring famous person. <laughs> like, yeah. like, you guys, you like I, I would like to see that movie. Exactly. Even if I can't be part of it. Yeah. yeah. So it, it is tough. I always think the biopic is, is a fun way to go and just try to find someone unique and interesting you know, if there was a big George Washington one a couple of years ago called The Virginian that I really liked because it was like George Washington when he was a general, like coming up in the army. Well, like that's still going to happen, isn't it? Uh, it's still, yeah, it was Bradley Cooper was going to star in it. I don't know where it is now. It might have shot, but it was yeah, fun, like, was Jason. But that was Jason Hall. That was after American Sniper. But it was still spec. Was it Jason? Yeah, I thought it was Michael Gunn maybe wrote it. The spec. Oh, and, and the Jason was on the direct. It. Yeah, or something. Yeah. But it was, again, like a good idea. You know, yeah. American Sniper was a book too. Yeah. There's stuff out there. I mean, there's always stuff every year. I feel like we could point to so many biopics every year and finding what they are and finding the, the famous person behind it as always, you know. All right, guys. Well, that's all our time this week. We will be back. I'll see you guys in two weeks. I'm gone next week. But uh, where can we find? I'm still not really on the internet. I'm desperately trying to quit Twitter. But I made a YouTube video about 35 versus iPhone. And if you want to study 35 millimeter filmmaking, I'm teaching a class, brooklyn35millimeter.com. You can take 35 millimeter class with me in the summer in Brooklyn. So if you're like, I'm in Oberlin, or Bennington, and we don't have a film class, you can come to Brooklyn, hang out in Brooklyn. Maybe you party at night. I don't want to judge. And then you learn 35 millimeter and you get college credit and it's cheaper than your college credit at your fancy school because it's Brooklyn College. So you save yourself money at your fancy school and you learn 35. Brooklyn 35 millimeter. That's a deal you can't not take. It's a great deal. I want to take it. I'm at Lost in Graceland on socials and you can find my work at ggHawkins.com. I'm at Jason Hellerman on socials and Jason at nofilmschool.com if you want to email in a question or chat and you know we'll keep on trucking. Send me all of your famous people biopic ideas because I'm, I'm out. You know, I've, I've, I've taken too many swings. I'm out of people. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the best one but I'm keeping them I'm specking it myself. Good. But it's so good. I'm so excited well, about it. I can't it. wait I'm to read it. so much fun with it. Mm-hmm.